Yes, it's Whataboust, a celebration of Reeves and Mortimer. Please welcome your hosts for this podcast, MJ Price and Paula Wiseman. Hello and welcome to Quite a Boast, a podcast dedicated to the work and genius of Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer. My name is Matt, founder of the Reeves and Mortimer Depository of Curious Stuff Facebook group. And I'm Paula Wiseman, the creator of the Divine Comedians podcast. Today we are joined by a legend of the big night out. After meeting Jim Moyer while studying art at Goldsmiths College, he became one of that happy band that brought Victory's Big Night Out to life, most notably as one of the show's most memorable characters, the icon that was Vic's mute assistant, Les. From the small screen to concert venues up and down the country, he won the hearts of a nation without uttering a single word. Post-TV, he went on to become a successful artist specialising in ceramics, but does he still raise a smile whenever he sees a spirit level? Please enter the Novelty Island paddock, Fred Aylward. Hey! Hi, Hello. Fred. Hello. Hey, Fred! <laughs> How are you? Okay. Yeah, no, it's so, it's so great to see you. Like, you literally haven't aged a day. Well. Not a line to be, not a line to be seen. You need new glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I do. Maybe I do. Of course, from the off, Fred, what's exciting for a lot of our listeners, this is probably the first time they've ever heard your voice after um, 30 yeah, years. Probably, probably. Yeah. <laughs> this is actually the first time he's spoken in 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to go back, Fred, to um, to Deptford. Where, am I correct in saying that's where you were from originally? Yeah, I was born here. You still you still live in Deptford now, yeah? Yeah, just born across the road from here. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And that, of course, was the home of the, the big night out, Deptford, New Cross area. Um, and what was it like? I mean, you went to art college there as well. Am I correct? Well, I went to Goldsmiths back, back. That was in the 70s. Yeah. Because um, I'm a bit older than Vic and Bob. Yeah. Um, three years older. And then I went to Ravensbourne College and did art there. Um, but in the mid-80s, about 1986, I went and joined Lewisham Community Workshops. In those days, there were three million unemployed Mm. Um, and I was mm. one of them, but you're allowed to do two or three days' work in art or drama right. and still sign on. And you got paid whatever, you know, for the workshops. So I went and joined um, community workshops, and Jim was there already. He'd, he'd already started on this course. Mm -hmm. And I'd seen him around in New Cross, it was about 1986, with dyed black hair, looking pretty much like. I don't know, cross between a young Elvis Presley and shaking Stevens. <laughs> so he was very noticeable just in New Cross, and he knew the test, test department crowd yeah. and all of that lot. So we started working together, doing art and drama workshops in schools. We did some in a hospital. We did a mural in a local school, which I managed to photograph before they demolished it. So I've actually, yeah, got all that original work that we did together. And then... One afternoon, he said that Deptford and New Cross were full of cabarets, clubs and mm. comedy clubs and, and bands were on and there were dance things going on. And so it's quite a lively social um, place, even more so than it is now in the 80s. So he said, um, I'm doing a 20 minute stint at the Parrot Cafe, which was in the Goldsmiths Tavern on a Monday evening. Mm -hmm. Did I want to come along and see it? And he said, I'll either be called Craig Wildfowl or Vic Reeves. <laughs> and I think your best bet is Vic Reeves. <laughs> anyway, he did 20 minutes of balancing carrots on sticks. Um, he sang Please Release Me in a, I think it was Mr. Byright suit. <laughs> it might have been the white suit he used to wear. Um, and you know, it was in part of this cabaret evening. 
Um, and the the Parrot Cafe was run by Nicky Smedley, who went on to play La La in the Taliban. Wow. <laughs> um, and then he he went back there on another Monday evening and and was just appeared on stage with his suit jacket, tie and shirt with a pair of wife fronts on, no trousers on. <laughs> and then Nikki, la la, she came on just in a pair of knickers and they did a, a duet together, just with no, you know, trousers on the bottom half. Um, and it was never mentioned. It was just all very surreal from the word go, really. Yeah. So I did actually see the very first performance of Vic Reeves, you know, a year, at least a year before Bob, we met Bob. So. Yeah. And that was just... People were just either baffled, <laughs> they were laughing hysterically, it's, um, or so they just didn't know what they'd seen. So yourself, Fred, did you did you want to become an artist and was comedy just something that sort of no, fell um, upon you because of Vic? I'd started performing a year before I met him. Um, we used to do club nights in warehouses in Rotherhive, mm-hmm. uh, the Africa Centre. Some mates of mine just DJ'd. And one night I decided to get up and read some quite earnest poetry through a megaphone on a seat on a stall. So that was my first performance in, I think it was the Africa Centre, mm-hmm. Bob and Garden. Um, and then mm-hmm. I started doing writing and performing performance poetry, but it wasn't comedy. It was fairly earnest stuff. So but by the time I met Jim, he was into doing comedy and he did the first Vic Reeves Palladium in Winston's Wine Bar on a Sunday evening and I'd already been running a club there on a Wednesday evening called the Atlas Room and I was putting on bands and whoever wanted to perform that's the sort of atmosphere that was in Deptford and New Cross you went and found uh, a night where the pub didn't make any money a quiet night and just said can we put something on and they usually said, yes, we'll yeah. take the bar takings, you keep the door money. That's how mm-hmm. it worked. It was just a handshake, you know. Yeah. So he, he came along and took over Sunday nights from a friend of ours, Colin, who wanted to give up his club night. So, yeah, so the Victory's Palladium was born with the likes of Del- Dorian, um, Dorian Crook, John Irvin, who did all the sound stuff and tapes. And he he was a performer in his own right. Um, but it was mostly Vic Reeves. There was a bit of, um, I th- what was that thing on the TV where husband and wife came on and answered questions about themselves? Mr. and Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Mr. And Mrs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He did a sort of spoof of that. So from the word go, he was spoofing stuff that was on the TV yeah, um, and just messing around with it, just having a laugh, you know. So, yeah, so that all worked really well. I think Dorian did Peters and Lee played an organ with his girlfriend. He had dark glasses on, pretended to be blind. Yeah, we had um, Dorian on here and he talked about that, actually. Yes, yeah, so yeah, I've yeah. actually listened yeah. to that. I love you. <laughs> nice. um, and then I, I'd get roped in. So, yeah, so our day job was the art and drama workshops. And then in the evenings, we did all sorts of performance stuff, you know. It was, mm. uh, it outgrew Winston's mm. one really quickly. But the likes of... Uh, George Holland and Glenn Tilbrook came along because it was sort of their local pub as yeah. well and saw, you know, the very early shows. And then yeah. they started turning up at uh, the Goldsmiths Tavern when it moved mm-hmm. up there. So it outgrew Winston's really quickly. Yeah. Uh, went to the Goldsmiths Tavern, I think it was a Thursday. Um, he was also doing uh, the Rubber Dub Club in Sydenham as a compere. Um, just, you know, whatever was offered to him. And it was usually just doing a quiz with people out of the audience, singing, um, uh, you know, please release me, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Cheesy, easy listening, I suppose. <laughs> so what was your what was your role when you started performing? Were you kind of given a role? Were you did you kind of make? No, because he allowed when it got to the Gospel's Tavern, he allowed other people to come on mm. and to whatever they wanted, really. Um, so I was doing something called Theoatrix, which was sort of uh, the poetry thing. I did a thing called The Hippie and the Skinhead. I actually turned from a hippie into a skinhead with a strobe light. I mean, it was just 
bonkers. It really was. Um, me and my friend Jerome did Panstick. No, yeah, Panstick Galactica. No, that was no. Um, I'm getting confused. <laughs> I did something called Panstick Galactica with John Irvin's brother. Right. Was called Mutton Jeff. So the pair of us would go on and we'd mime to Moon, Moon Age Daydream, I think it was. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I, I can barely remember it. Um, and then he got offered the Harp Club, which is above the venue in New Cross, one Saturday night. And he asked me and Jerome to do some naked headbanging. We had guitars sort of uh, strategically placed, <laughs> but were completely naked with long wigs on. And we were called Planet Head. <laughs> so there, there we were and that was an, an act that was put on so he introduced all these bizarre acts as if he was uh, a tv presenter it was yeah. just you know vic reeves presenting all these bizarre things that anyone was up for he'd either give you the idea like he gave us the idea for planet head or i would go along and say can i do this mm. and he'd usually say yeah there's obviously uh, a like-mindedness though but between this collective yeah there were what was going on there was um, a, a guy called um, Paul Kennedy who was in a band called Salad. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. He came on and did quite surreal poetry. He wrote that himself. Mm -hmm. So that was his contribution. Would Jack Dent's been with you at that time as well? Um, no, that was a bit later, really. Mm -hmm. Jack Dent wasn't actually in London at that point. Jim shared a flat with John Irvin on the Crossfields Estate, so they had a council flat between them. I mean, Crossfields Estate was a hard-to-let estate. Nobody wanted to live there, so they offered them to students and anybody who wanted a hard-to-let flat. And our local pub was called the Oxford Arms, so it was in between his house and mine, so we'd meet there and talk about what was going to be going in the show, just in the pub. He'd be writing stuff down or, you know, we'd all sort of cont contribute things. Not me so much. It was mainly him and John that came up with the stuff. I don't know if you've met John Irvin or... We've not had John on yet. He's on, he's oh, on our yes. list. They did, they did Tappy Lappy together with the long shoes on. Yeah. Did, um, dressed with Brian Ferry masks. So that was, that was Tappy Lappy. That was him and John, I think, doing that. But yeah. John did all the sound. He was the sound guy mm -hmm. from the word go all the way through. And then... We got offered some shows at the um, Albany in Deptford. That was a series of Sundays. Um, yeah, so we did uh, every Sunday. And it was a month of Sundays and mm. still carried on doing Thursday nights every week. Wow. And uh, Malcolm Hardy's Tunnel Club, that was offered as well. And the Rubber Dub Club, he compared at. And then he would go off into central London um, I remember going to Notting Hill with him. I think it was the Tabernacle. He was asked to compare in between bands mm. right. just by himself, but he needed someone to do the tapes. If John couldn't do it, I'd probably go along and do the tapes for him, but not perform, right. just, just help him out with like that. But I'm actually in the process of researching, writing a book. Oh, wow. Because oh, nobody has really covered. I mean, it was, it was only six years, really. Mm in Deptford, but it was there was a lot going on. Uh, Bob's book sort of touches on it slightly. I did. I saw Jim just before lockdown and said, why did your biography finish in 1980? Yes. <laughs> Same for volume two. And he said, I can't remember anything else. <laughs> so I don't I I think don't it's really interesting. You had the, the early alternative comedy scene, which is mainly based on Soho and Lexi mm. Sale and Tony Allen. And there was uh, the Tunnel Club was yes, you know, yeah. on a Sunday night. That was absolutely jam-packed and yeah. would have all of those acts. But you and uh, you you and Jim and, and your gang sort of grew separately from that and yeah. created your own unique style with the artistic background rather than the political comedy. Well, Jim would go along and usually, you know, people start throwing beer cans, full mm. beer cans, if they didn't like him. They just didn't understand what he was doing there, you know, in this this yeah. political comedy thing that everyone the tunnel was notorious for things like that anyway wasn't it? but then Malcolm said i'm going to give you a whole sunday so we did a whole big night out down there wow right got most of our friends in so it sort of it evened out more really 
So when did when would Les start to emerge around this time? When we went to the Albany. Although I'd done I'd done a character. He, he also compared the Yacht Club in Southend through some friends of mine. And I went along and did Derek, the lab technician, because I was working in a school by that time. Um, and I brought a white coat, although I was, I was the art technician. So when we went to the Albany, Jim said, we're going to need someone to stage manage. And I'd done that. I'd done a bit of stage managing with a children's theatre group and also, you know, looked after backstage at the um, all the gigs that we did. So he said, could I stage manage? But as a character, I wouldn't speak and I'd be known as Les. And he said, bring your white coat along. Wow. So he remembered the white coat. And I said, well, I don't actually wear the white coat at school. I wear a navy blue like, apron covered in clay. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, no. <laughs> So we were doing all this in the daytime. He was having to earn a living at, at it. So he was doing much more performing. Mm. Than mm. Else. But we would go along and help him and support him. And I also did very early PR. I'd been in the fashion business. Uh, I did fashion textiles at college. Then got to know a lot of fashion people and journalists. So my friend Joe was... Um, art editor on Girl About Town, I think. Mm -hmm. So he got some very, first, you know, early publicity through mm -hmm. my connections. But, um, and I've I even approached, approached Dylan Jones, who I'd worked with at the Fridge Nightclub. We were both bar staff. Can you imagine? And <laughs> Dylan Jones became a journalist. Yeah. But I phoned him up at Gentleman's Quarterly, I think he was. No, he was doing ID. That was it. He was doing ID. Oh, right. mm -hmm. So I, I phoned him up and said, would you, you know, do a piece on Vic Reeves? And I said, never heard of him. You know, it's sort of, it's a real uh, stretch to put something in the magazine, but it's totally unknown. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he never wrote the piece. And then many years later, I saw him once we'd been on telly and he said to me, you were right, I was wrong. <laughs> and I said, I know. <laughs> you could have had a really early interview with Vic Reeves. <laughs> Mr. Chance, <laughs> Mr. Dylan Jones. So was he? He was given to you totally fully formed, you know. So Jim had this. Did you have any input into Les at all? No, he just he just he know he knew that I'd done some mime stuff. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'd done some sort of performance poetry mime things, so he knew that I could do silent stuff. But he just mm. said, "You'll just be backstage clearing." really literally putting all the props in order and then clearing the stage. And then gradually I got introduced more and more on stage. And then he said, oh, he'd met Bob by this point and they were just, you know, working out a double act. But Les had become quite an integral part of the show. He used to get a, a big clap and a round of applause every time I appeared on stage to clear up. And I wasn't smiling, obviously. And I'd just stare at the audience and they'd all burst into <laughs> laughter. <laughs> I really didn't have to do very much, you know. And then at the end of the show, he used to sing, please, Mr. Songwriter. And I would come on and do a little dance to it. But that was just my idea to come on and do that. You know, you, you could just weave your way in and out with certain yeah. things. The audience would let you know if it, they didn't want you. Yeah, no, it's very visual, though, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's like Dorian and his fuck off top. <laughs> Um, and then John, when Jonathan Ross came down to the Albany, he got up on stage and they could invite him up to chat. And there was, they were shouting out, fuck off, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was quite an arc. I mean, the audience were, I mean, we're all, we were all ex-punks, basically, mm. 10 years after punk. Mm. And I think that fed in, that anarchic thing, you know, from the young ones, uh, all of that was going on. I think they were closer to the young ones than any political stand-up, you know. So do you remember when uh, Bob first appeared on the scene? Yeah, I'm, I remember um, there was this guy called Alan King. Dr King introduced him. Dr King used to do Dr King and his Flying Rabbits as a novelty <laughs> act, and they were literally stuffed rabbits on a piece of string twirled <laughs> around his head. <laughs> And then he'd let them go. So that was Dr. King and his flying rabbits. So he brought Bob along from Camberwell. They both lived in Camberwell. So um, 
and I think the I can't remember, quite remember the first time he got up on stage, but I do remember saying to him afterwards, "That went really well. I think you found your only wise." And he yeah. didn't get it. And I said, "It's just like Eric and Ernie, but uh, wow. you know, but he never saw that for ages." Oh no! I sent him a postcard saying, "You've." So I went away on holiday and sent a postcard saying, "Oh, well done! You found your only wise." And the postcard, and he didn't yeah. know what I was on about, you know. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, he was always com- compared to to Eric Morecambe many, many times, wasn't he? Over the years, just that mm. same sort of sensibility. But when we were at Lush Community Workshops, I remember him doing some uh, drama training, and thought, "You're quite a good actor," you yeah. know. That came across quite early on. So I wasn't that surprised when he took up some acting roles or they started developing mm. as they went through the the years and the decades. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you remember when the um, when the TV people started turning up and we got the pilot? Well, that was, we used to go up to Covent Garden on a Saturday lunchtime to, uh, what was it called? Lunchtime at the Rock Garden in Covent right. Garden. And... We'd befriended Boys Wonder, who was um, two twins that lived in Blackheath, who were in this band called Boys Wonder. And they were like the missing link between punk and Britpop, but in the 80s. I mean, they were just fantastic bands. So um, they started performing. We started going to their gigs and Jim introducing them at the Rock Garden. And in the audience was um, Adam Ross, Jonathan's younger brother. Adam Ross was a fan of Boys Wonder, so that's why he was there. So that was the connection between Jim meeting Jonathan Ross. Oh, oh right. Adam Ross, the younger brother. I'm giving all, all the detail of my book away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a teaser for the book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, So and then obviously Jonathan was invited down to the Albany. I'm not sure how Alan Yentob got involved. Mm. He was down there as well. So that we had BBC and I and Channel Four vying for the show, and right. Jonathan said, "If you want to do what you're doing, you'd be better off with uh, Channel Four. Mm. BBC will try and change it too much." Yeah, so, those, so that first series yeah. was like a, the live show that was in the pub, but transferred to TV. And I, I suppose when it went to TV, your stage manager manager duties were put to one side, taken away from you, and you were just performing yeah. on stage as less. There was a proper stage manager at the back. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just had to pretend that I was still... It was never really defined who Les was or what anything, really. It was just... It yeah. just seemed to work. A lot of it... If it didn't work, they ditched it, you know, quite quickly. Yeah. I can't remember anything specifically, but... Can you remember when Les became a cult figure? Because the the audience, TV audience and the studio audience, I assume, loved him pretty much straight away. It was, um, well, I had friends who came to see the show at the the Goldsmiths Tavern. And and I still see them to this day. And they, they were fans from the word go. So we had people there. Then when it went to TV, we took our audience from Deptford, would they would get the tickets for the TV right. show. So we had a built-in receptive audience. We didn't have to win them over. <laughs> so that sort of works. And then more and more people. But then by the time we did the first tour out of London, you know, they, they tried to do a tour in 1987. Malcolm Hardy set up a tour for them. Yeah. So they did Bracknell Arts Centre. Where else did they go? Windsor. I can't remember. It was all West London. Mm-hmm. I went with them to Bracknell Arts Centre, and they, you know, the people were just appalled. <laughs> really is the only word I can use. I got pinned to the wall, and and this bloke said to me, "Are you anything to do with those two? I said, "No, I've never seen it before." <laughs> you know, was, this man was so angry that what oh, he, really? yeah, <laughs> they used to really upset people that didn't get it, didn't understand it, thought they were being taken the piss you know says so, a lot about Bracknell though doesn't it really yeah and, and Windsor <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't travel well in those early days mm. and you know I don't even think anyone got paid it was like no one saw any money oh people were demanding their money back what am I talking about you know they were walking <laughs> out they were going to the box office trying to get their money back 
that's how badly it went down, you know. But, a, uh, yeah, the people so, love Les. I remember the, the episode where Jim, as Mr. Dennis, the shopkeeper, punches Les to the floor, and the audience reaction is just a shock and horror. Like, oh, you know, how dare you? That's Les. I've erased that from my mind. <laughs> <I can't. laughs> PTSD. <laughs> but they they love Les. They love Les. <laughs> Let's talk for a moment about um the great Emma Cafferty's performance as Judith Grant. Yeah, do you know she she died quite recently? Yeah, I did hear that. Yeah, very sorry to hear that, Fred. Yeah, it's about three years ago now. I mean, she was superb as Judith Grant. Such a it was a deadpan character, and she just played it perfectly. I thought. She was going out with Bob for a while. And they were a couple all the way through those sort of early days. Um, then they obviously split up. They weren't together. But I remained friends with her and Jim's girlfriend at the time, Lucy. They, mm. I was always really good friends with them, socialised with them. So I kept it. But I kept in touch with Emma right up until the end. She yeah. was living down in Sussex, so I used to go and visit her. But yeah. um, Very sad, very sad. Yeah. I was thinking earlier on, another um, performer in Series 2, who I don't think I saw anywhere else, was a guy called Dudley Freeman, who on Novelty Island used to turn up every week and say, oh, you're wasting oh. your time. Yeah. <laughs> who was he? <laughs> I don't know. He was just hired in. He wasn't. I, God knows where he came from. I can't remember. He's got no other credits. I did have a look online earlier. Oh. I don't know what else he did. He must have been hired in as an actor or something. I don't know. Just for it's, the listeners. It's such a long time ago that it's, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm having to research it to do any writing. Yeah. I've got to go through old diaries and stuff, you know. I bet it's going to turn out he's like some Shakespearean, <laughs> yes. Shakespearean actor. Classical actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who was wasted on the big friends night. With, friends of Derek Jacobi, you know. <laughs> for the listeners you don't know, I'd assume this is where Jim got it from. You're wasting your time is... is um. In the Will Hay film, Oh, Mr. Porter, there's the, the postman who turns up regularly and says, you're wasting your time to Will Hay, was I suppose it's the, where you got it from. There were all of those references, here's that man again, or it's that man again, yeah. it's the man with the stick. They were all taken from radio, and so there was a lot of input from the past rather than you know our, our current. At the time, there was, wasn't really much reference to the outside world. No. There was no mention of the three million unemployed or no. Margaret Thatcher. None of that at all. And if they did, it was just sort of a Mickey take with action image exchange. That yeah. was the closest they got to it. Yeah. I, me- I remember him doing an impersonation of David Bowie, and I in one of the episodes of the yes, Big Night right. on TV, and I, I think he just had some drawing on his face <laughs> or something, and it had no relation, but bore no relation to no. Bowie at all. I mean, it was just. So can you, um, I mean, when the show got really successful, obviously you took it on the road again, and that I think the audience reaction was probably different to Windsor when you went yes. out that time round. But the, the, the best tour for me was the college tour of 1990. Mm. Um, but then after the second series, they had to go on a tour again. So they did the big two-month, I think it was, tour of all the big theatres which was fantastic seeing all those big old theatres. I loved it. But, um, but everyone was a bit worn out by the end of that tour. Mm. They were splitting up with Emma and Lucy, or they had split up, So and there were new girlfriends on the scene. So it was, And Emma was brought in to do Judith Grant for the uh, recording of the live show. Yeah. But she didn't want to be there because she's... You know, it's all a bit emotional for yeah yeah mm. and everyone i think those two must have been fed up with it really and i actually had a snappy snap incident with bob and he said that there's a, a second dressing room in, in every theater i suggest you use it so by the end of that tour we weren't talking unless on you know on, on stage we were traveling around the country we were just all fed up with it um, I'd yes, yeah, I'd, I'd fallen out with Bob, and yeah. we did ten nights at Hammersmith, mm. and I only saw them on stage. I never saw them outside of that, um, mm. which was just weird. Um, 
you know, to be that level of success. And then it was all sort of falling apart at the seams, you know. Um, you hear similar stories with lots of rock bands, don't you? And it's a time yeah, you should really take yeah, a yeah. break. Yeah. It was a bit like that. So then we did the last show at Hammersmith and I found it rushed, you know, barely lasted an hour and 10 minutes, that last show. Mm. And I just thought, oh, thank, thank goodness that's over. We'd been together six years. It was mm. just... Uh, they were quite intense, though, wasn't it? Do you know, it was such an intense... Yeah. And, oh, I mean, it was crazy. Um, on that tour, someone jumped out of the bushes. It was this woman in a white coat and a swimming cap on and a pair of glasses, dressed as me. She frightened the life out of me. <laughs> you know, I was, just, I was walking to the theatre and she just jumped out of the bushes dressed as Les. I, I just thought, <laughs> this? this is crazy, you know. Or yeah. there'd be people dressed as other characters in the audience. You'd see the Stots sitting there dressed up, you know. I mean, it was just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I did. I did Man with a Stick for non-uniform day at school one year. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so easy. Just, you know, just the paper. <laughs> and then uh, the, for the filming of at Newcastle, we had the Wonder Stuff on stage. Mm. That was just crazy. And Dizzy had gone to number one. So it was just absolutely crazy mayhem. Fans were banging on the coach as it approached the theatre. We had to have a police escort at wow. one place. I think it was Nottingham, you know, because they couldn't get through all the fans. It was just, it was just really, really bonkers. And yeah. then sort of Les got roped in with that, you know, for people dressing up as Les. I had my own T-shirt at one point. Um, so that, that was quite... On the first tour, I printed my own T-shirts. <laughs> they didn't think they'd sell. And I said, I'll, I'll do them because I'm a textile printer. So I printed some of those T-shirts and they, they sold. And then the, by the second tour, they got the, you know, they got the official Les T-shirts, but they sold out halfway through and they never replaced them. So, yeah, there was all that backstage stuff, but, which annoyed me. Mm. That was management stuff, you know. It was, oh, because I had the same management as them to start off with. Right. Then I was called in at one point and said, there's a conflict of interest. So I had to go and find a manager. I tried to get, um, it was June and Clary's management. Uh, the name escapes me. I mm. think, he, I don't think he's alive anymore. Anyway, so I tried to get him and they didn't want to touch me. They said, no, we don't want to be managing you on your With the Big Night Out. So I ended up with Jules Holland's management, which was rock and roll management. Mm. And it just made it worse, really. I mean, you know, there's this guy that I had, Paul. Um, he worked really hard for me for his 20%. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was like rock and roll management meets their management. And there were all these arguments and faxes going backwards and forwards. And that the whole thing that the fans or nobody ever saw, it was all going on in the background. So, yeah, by the end of that tour, I, we all just walked away from it. And I didn't see or speak to them for 15 years. It was that bad. And it's the pressure as well. We, we did the live recording in Newcastle. Um, they filmed the big night out on tour. And yeah. then somebody from their management organised for us to meet the press on a Friday night after the show at half past 11 at night. So someone said to me, you do those six journalists, and the other two had 12 between them. So we were doing interviews to like two o'clock in the morning when we'd just done a live show. So the pressure was just unbelievable. Crazy. And I didn't enjoy any of that at all. It was just, the thing is, I, I had no plans to be a, an actor or a performer. Yeah. <laughs> it all happened a bit by accident, really. Yeah. I mean, I was working full time in a school, and then me and Bob never um, gave our jobs up until after the first series. I used to take every Friday off unpaid leave to go and do the filming because um, I just wasn't convinced that I just thought, I don't want a career in comedy. What What's all this about? You know, mm. I'm not going to have a career as a perform um, performance artist, but I, I now look back on it and think I was probably the most well-known performance artist yeah. in the country, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, Les did a couple of appearances on his own before your series, which we'll we'll get to. I remember seeing on the Big Breakfast, I believe. Yeah, I was thinking about that today. Actually, the yeah. Big Breakfast. 
Yeah, and also um, there was a Jules Holland show, well, wasn't there? Viva uh, Cabaret. Was Viva it? Cabaret. Yeah. Um, you know what happened was after when we'd finished, I went yeah. off to uh, Gran Canaria for a week after that tour. In the, we finished in sort of just before Christmas, ninety one, I suppose it would have been um, yeah. ninety two. I went away, came back, and there were journalists on my doorstep asking me questions about how did I feel about Vic and Bob going off to the BBC, and so I got inside and. And uh, the phone was ringing. The funds, the, the son phoned me, God. to you know, to ask me how I felt about that. So I said, "I'll wish them luck." Then I had a phone call from TV Twenty One. That was um, that was the other John, uh, Jonathan Ross, other brother Miles Ross, and Graham K Smith. They ran mm. a TV production company called um, TV Twenty One. And they approached me with the idea of doing a Les series, Les Lives. Mm. And I said, I'd be delighted. Mm. So they said, well, we're going to have to get permission from Vic and Bob. And I said, yeah, but they might have came up with the name and what the character looked like. But I was improvising most of it, unless it was scripted for TV. And on, you know, so it became quite complicated. Then I found out from Equity, because me and Bob had to join Equity, that the copyright lay with whoever performed the character last. So oh, I nice. put my hand up and so said, that was me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I thought we'd then have the copyright. So we went ahead. Um, TV21 got the budget from BBC2. Janet Street Porter was on board as a sort of executive producer. So the BBC came up with half the budget and... TV21 got the other half of the budget from Warner Brothers mm. with the idea that it would go out on BBC2, which were the, they were like five-minute programmes, Les Lives, uh, and there were about 12 of those. Um, and then Warner Brothers would bring it out on video. And yeah. I thought, great, my character doesn't speak. We're worldwide. There's no language barrier. Yeah, exactly. So that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> But so uh, we went ahead and filmed that. I sat down and wrote 12 scripts and the producers had some sort of input, which I wasn't very happy about. But anyway, for better or worse, we then had 10 days to film it. Five days in the studio, Bagley's Warehouse, which I think used to be up by King's Cross, big warehouse up there. That All the sets were built in there. And then we did all the locations locally here in Broccoli. Uh, just up the road in um, hilly fields and any outdoor places that we needed. Mm. Um, I chose locally because it would be easier to sort of, because it was such an early start, we had to start filming at like eight or nine in the morning. I'd have to be up at seven. Oh, wow. I didn't want to drive into central London. So they got mm. a driver for me. So we did all the outside stuff. I was annoyed because they never came out on. What are those old-fashioned things? VHS. <laughs> never came out on VHS. Um, but they did get shown on Def 2. That was fair. Yeah. That was uh, Janet Street Porter. So they had a showing on TV. And then many years later, that I've now they're, they're now on YouTube. Yeah. They're all on YouTube. So I, I don't care that they never came out on <laughs> On video or DVD. Oh, no, but where's VHS these days? Nobody even <laughs> well, has a player. There, so. <laughs> they um, are wonderful. I mean, as what I remember at the time, I watched them again recently. <laughs> it's like a comic strip come to life. Uh, you got the supporting yeah, well, the characters. The idea was is that what happens if we put Les in the real world? That that yeah. was the starting point. And then some friends of mine came on board. They were performers. Um, there's a really tall guy in it. He was in the Albany shows. He was Easy Listening Man. Right. He used to come on and sing Easy Listening Man um, in an armchair at the Albany. Um, so, and Peter played ukulele. So he would do lots of filling in things, but never transfer to the TV show. Mm. But he was there at the Goldsmiths Tavern in the Albany. And there's Bloody Nora and Banger the Dog. <laughs> well, we had two bangers. You could only... Yeah, we... we I don't know. Uh, dog, dogs must have an equity. Oh, yeah. 
uh, you could only use one dog in the morning and one dog in the afternoon. <laughs> and a stunt one. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't use them all day. It was too much for them. So we, we had two bangers that the had a backup uh, banger. A backup banger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Peter was in that, and then Karen Beanie is a friend of mine. She played Bloody Nora. That name came from uh, a T-shirt Jim did for the Goldsmiths Tavern that said Bloody Nora on it. He gave it away as a prize. That was a prize. <laughs> in one of... So I remembered the name. I thought oh, that would be a great name for Beanie. So, yes, yeah, so for better or worse, we made all those little shows. I did try and do some live stuff because the, the production company said, if you keep the name Les going, mm. it would be good for Warner Brothers when they bring it out on VHS. Mm. And then I suddenly got a phone call to say it's not happening. And to this day, I'm not sure why it never happened. Mm. I mean, you know, they put up, Warner Brothers put up their half of the money and they never oh. got any returns. No. I don't know what happened. I still haven't found out what happened. It's so like I'm putting assuming... that investment into something and just, and then walking yeah. away from it. It, does, it doesn't make sense, does it, really, when you think about it? Um, Vic and Bob and their management, they weren't that keen for any character to exist outside of Big Night Out. I argued I'd given up a full-time job mm. and I needed to do something. Uh, their management said, go back on the comedy circuit. I said, well, I was never on the comedy circuit. What are you talking about? All I've got to work with is Les. So that's why I pushed it. And we got the thing made, got a showing on TV, but then there was no no VHS backup. It wasn't, mm. There were some, there were a couple of videos that were made. Um, I've got one. One was sent to the NME and it got a really bad review. They just slated it. They hated it. So I wrote a, I sent a thank you card to the reviewer. <laughs> I said, thank, thank you for all your encouragement. Gone <laughs> 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 the same way as VHS. <laughs> um, and then I got to do a live show. And I, I was speaking to M Malcolm Hardy used to come and join our quiz team. Mm. At the local oh, yeah, right. and, Bell. and he used to do Glastonbury. And I said, well, how can I get our live, live show at Glastonbury? Oh, the enemy asked me to do the early morning wake-up call in 1991, something like that. So I did get employed through them to do that. I did it again in 93. And then by 95, I just thought I've got nothing to lose. So Malcolm said, all you have to do is phone up Arabella Churchill. She runs the cabaret comedy field. So I phoned her up and she's just said, how long and how much? And I said, well, we do an hour as a live show. Um, she said, how many performers? So off the top of my head, I said, there's six, there's six of us. And I had no idea who these <laughs> people were going to be. I just said six. And she said, oh, they can all have a guest each. So I got 12 people into Glastonbury and I got paid. They got fed and watered. And I said, all you have to to commit to is an hour per day of doing this uh, walkabout called Les Live, which yeah. is actually on that's on YouTube. Mm. Les goes to Glastonbury. Um, yeah, that was a little film my friend made. So that's on there. And it's had thousands of people have watched it. I'm just amazed. But some of the Les Lives episodes, they were individually on the internet. Mm. And Les gets a haircut, suddenly got thousands of hits. And some lesbian friends of mine said, it's because lesbians like to watch other lesbians having haircuts. <laughs> they said that's the only reason that got so many hits. Les gets a haircut. That's bizarre. <laughs> I've been bitterly disappointed. <laughs> what's, the, what's this? Where's the lesbians? <laughs> I know. But if it gets you new fans, then that's yeah. fine. <laughs> Never work out why that had more hits than anyone else, but that's that's the oh, reason. Les, he's, he's so beloved, do you know what I mean, by the fans, you know, it's mm. to this day, so... I mean, looking back, I, I couldn't care less now because it's out there on the internet. Mm. So I was very upset at the time it didn't come out. Mm. And by the end of the 90s, um, I'd done a couple of... We went back to the Albany to do Les Live. The live shows were just called Les Live. And by 97, I just had enough of it and just thought, this is not my world. I didn't mm. plan this. Yeah. So I went back into art and design. Mm. 
we've been there ever since. <laughs> so, so were you ever offered any other acting roles or comedy roles away yeah, from Les? Were people... Two women came to one of the Hammersmith shows and they came backstage and they said, would I be interested in being in a musical called London playing the part of Rat Boy? And I <laughs> you've just seen me do Les. So how are you offering me a part in a musical? Yeah. How does this work? Um, I never heard from them again. <laughs> I've never heard of it. London again. No idea what it was. But the, one of the highlights for me was um, I got asked, do you remember, you probably don't, Today newspaper, which folded oh, in yes. the 90s. Um, I got asked to do a small ad for Today newspapers. So mm -hmm. they went through my manager and he set it all up, got paid loads of money for one day's work. They, I got a chauffeur-driven car to Pinewoods. So I was in the home of oh, wow. the, the carry-on films and everything I'd grown up on. I just thought, I can't believe I'm here in Pinewoods by myself, um, you know, dressing up as Liz. And we did this five-minute ad for Today newspaper, and it folded about three weeks yeah. ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wasn't really... It was shown on TV. I do remember seeing it very briefly. It's like a 30-second ad. I can't even remember what I was doing, but... It must be somewhere. out there somewhere. It's probably, yeah, recorded somewhere, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I'll, find, I'll do some investigating into that one. <laughs> someone, <laughs> someone, oh no, I'll find someone who's got it. It'll end up on YouTube sooner or later. <laughs> so that, that bought you a new mansion in Deptford, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, you but... must have seen so many. Like, Deptford must have changed so, so much, you know, since. Oh, God, yeah. I've, I was there a few months ago. I've got a friend who lives in New Cross. I've ne I'd never managed to get that far, <laughs> that oh, far afield. Well, um, yeah, I, I mean, I went to primary school here and secondary school, went to Goldsmiths up the road mm. to do foundation. So my whole early life was based around here. But I had a life before the big night out, um, yeah. which will go in the book as well, which is nothing to do with performing, really. It's just all the extraordinary things that used to go on around here in the, in the 70s, mm. 60s and 70s. Yeah, there's still yeah. a lot. So, so not much going on in Deptford. I was, I was surprised yeah, by how... How vibrant. <laughs> I mean, I'm maybe it's not the right word to use. It never used to be. <laughs> um, yeah, after the 80s, it was just, I suppose there was all the young British artists at Goldsmiths, Damien Hirsel and that lot. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but uh, the weird thing is that Damien Hirst claims to have seen a big night out at the Goldsmiths Tavern. And one day I brought in a pair of tiny lung, animal lungs in formaldehyde and Jim had them on stage as Les's tiny lungs and they, they were exhibited and passed around the audience and I was standing there dressed as Les you know and just yeah they're my lungs and then I just went I thought did Damon just get the idea for putting things in formaldehyde after seeing wow. my tiny little lungs mm. in, this, in this glass case We'll never know unless I'm well, take that, that take that credit, Fred. He's never going to admit to me. That's <laughs> the idea for my career. From Les's lungs. Tiny, tiny little lungs. Worst things to be known for, isn't there, in fairness? <laughs> <laughs> so when, when was the last time you performed as Les, Fred? Um, well, me and Jim, were, we were at Jules Holland's wedding back in 2006, 2007. And I'd seen him prior to that in... Malcolm Hardy's funeral hmm. bumped into him in the church. And I said to him, sorry to hear about your dad. I knew his dad had died. And that's the first time I'd spoken to him for ages. Hmm. I just thought, well, it's all water under the bridge now. And we had a drink and a chat. And we found ourselves at George Holland's wedding. And Jim's wife came up and said, why wouldn't I be in the, the big night out show they were doing at the Raymond Review Bar? to launch the DVD. Yeah. I said, well, I could have been in Cornwall. I'm on holiday. And she said, yeah, but it's not going to be the same without you. So she sort of talked me into it. So I sort of put back my holiday and I said, yes, I'll turn up for this 15-minute show to launch the DVD, which we did. I mean, 
I remember doing the little dancers layers. They did spirit vessels and choice, all the favourites. And the audience, from what I can see, were all journalists. But they went absolutely <laughs> bonkers for it, you know. Yeah. There must have been some fans there as well. And that's the last time I did I did Les. And I didn't enjoy doing it, to be honest with you. Mm. I hadn't performed for I hadn't done Les for 15 years. And mm. um, I think I'd I'd given up drinking and smoking for health reasons. Um and so I had never had that fuel that, that I had yeah. when I was younger. Uh, and and the conf- it gives you confidence on your you know if you have a drink and a fag before you go on, but um, and I thought I'm just so out of the loop. I'm not a performer, not not an actual performer. I just mm. didn't didn't enjoy it, and um, yeah. So one last hurrah. I did see him just before they did Bick and Bob's Big Night Out for the BBC, which. Was that this side of COVID? I can't remember. No, before, no, before right COVID. Before. Was it before yeah, COVID? Yeah. So I saw him, I can't remember where I bumped into, oh, he was doing a book signing in probably Waterstones or somewhere yeah. like that. So that's when his um, memoir, Mimar, Moy, Mimar, can't even say it, came <laughs> out. So I sat at the back while he read some passages from it. And then I went down and sit. And he said, Fred, and we said hello. And um, I helped him sign some of his books. Oh, great. So he wrote, wrote Vic Reeves and I wrote Liz. With a <laughs> so the, you know, the fans buying the book were absolutely thrilled at that. It's um, a collector's item. Mm. And then he'd been banned from driving. So we sat in a bar. I was still drinking. I think I was still drinking then. And it, we, we had a drink together. And he said, I, I, I got to wait for the driver to turn up to drive me back to Kent. I said, well, how long is that going to, can't you get a train? You know, like anybody else. <laughs> so he, while he was waiting for his driver, which was an hour, we had a good old chat and cleared the air and it was it was good. Oh, good. The last time I saw him was just before lockdown. He had a private view in uh, Mayfair and uh, I gate crashed that as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's the last time I saw him and um, and Bob, I haven't seen since the launch of the DVD, two thousand six mm. or whatever it was. Mm. Is so. the uh, so where is the white lab coat now, Fred? Um, it's in a museum. <laughs> yeah, it's actually in the. It's actually packed away. Uh, there, the there, there, are, there are three of them. There are <laughs> three of them. Because uh, when I was on tour, one had to be washed. It used to get filthy every night. Can I imagine? <laughs> So that that went, you know, just to get dry cleans and, you know, I just just stick it in the sink and wash it, you know. So there are three of them in the in the wardrobe somewhere packed away. <laughs> eBay. <laughs> I never thought of that, but it's just a white coat, lab coat. To you, Fred, it's a, it's just a white lab coat, but you know. I still got the pens. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to get um, an ad- advert with Bic. Um, he wrote to them and said, would you like your pens? And they wrote back and said, thank you very much, but they're universal. We don't oh, have to advertise. Oh, no. So it turned me down. So tell us a bit about your artwork that you've um, you've been you've been doing since you retired, Les. Well, yeah, the Deptford X Arts Festival, the local arts festival, was 25 years old. And they've asked me to put a piece in... Um, so I do, I do watercolours of wonky buildings. Um, wow. And the project was I did watercolours of buildings that no longer exist. So And then showed a photograph of what's there now. So like Deptford Odeon, which is fantastic art deco, mm. I did a, a, a watercolour of that and showed the photograph, which is there now. Which right. is, you know, that, that's, that was the project for that particular thing. No, but as I said, Deptford, Deptford, I was surprised. It, oh, most of my family are from Croydon. <laughs> oh, I was there last weekend. Oh, I mean, Croydon's changed. Yeah. From what I remember of it in the 80s, you know, we used to go up and visit all the relatives there and my aunties and all that kind of stuff. And it's, you know, you look at it now and it's like a totally, totally different. It's very different. different well, I went to Berlin last weekend Um for four days my brother's in a band so we went to see him 
but we flew from Gatwick. So we were driving through Croydon at four in the morning in the dark. Oh my God! And we we arrived, arrived last, last Friday at nine o'clock in the morning. You know, so we had all, an, a, a whole day in front of us. So that was the reason for going so early. Yeah. So hot out there, I can't tell you. Oh, really? Yeah, really. It was like 40 degrees. It was just unbelievable. But mm. um, and we managed to get an Airbnb uh, on the fifth floor. So there were 10 flights of stairs and no lift. Um, but the flat had air conditioning. And I only had to walk up the stairs once a day. But... Yeah, so we had a good time out there. Yeah, I, I, I stayed with my friend in New Cross a, a while back and I, I wanted to make a pilgrimage to the goldsmiths, you know, and obviously it's, it's not there anymore. <laughs> it was well, like... no, I was in there in the summer. Um, so I went to, I go to the d- degree shows at Goldsmiths mm. um, and then we ended up in Goldsmiths Tavern. But it's it's changed beyond recognition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I, was, I was quite sad that, that I'd... And on my Facebook page is a photograph of Winston's wine bar just after it closed down as Winston's and opened as Blush's cocktail bar. So that's my Facebook page photo um, because that's where we all started, you know. That's demolished now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Gone completely. Dog Dog and Bell, which was our local, another local pub, that's changed out of recognition. I mean, Mm. yeah. Things evolve in mm. the timing. They everything these days. They just they, they want to replace everything. You know, it's you go looking <laughs> yeah. for something and it's it's gone. It's or progress apparently, Paula. Ah, <laughs> oh, no, I don't like progress. I'm, I'm very much in the past. I just want things to stay as they are. I, I'm just, I, when I'm I'm looking back now with mm. you, it's mm. thirty years ago. Yeah, but I do have do have very fond memories of it. You know, a lot of the time we were just laughing hysterically. Um, by the end, I was <laughs> in tears. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we we've survived it, and I made my peace with them, said hello. Yeah. Um, and then you know, they both got ill. You know, it's uh, Bob had his health problems. Mm. Um, Jim's deaf, I think, in one ear, yeah. and, and has some sort of benign brain tumor. You know. Mm. Uh, I developed gout and diabetes, <laughs> just for the record. <laughs> but, uh, that's why I gave up smoking and drinking, to be honest, mm. for health reasons. Mm. Um, and I never thought I'd be a non-smoker drinker. And also, by the end of the 90s, I got into great difficulties with drugs, to be right. honest. So um, cannabis, mostly, mm. and alcohol. And the two just kept me going for decades. <laughs> Until, yeah. you know, it, it, that was it. I just, uh, I had to stop. It was just killing me. And yeah. I went into therapy. Yeah, so the, I, I think I must, you know, my therapist probably committed suicide by the end of it. <laughs> oh, but you've come out. You're looking, you're looking fantastic. You, come out the other side. Yeah. You're looking fantastic, yeah. Fred. So it's obviously, it obviously works. Do you know, yeah. whatever, you, whatever you did worked. It did work. But because Lucy, I mean, I, I was... Before I met them, I was having sort of, sort of mental health problems, really. And it was mm. just, that's what, I, you know, I fitted into their shows <laughs> so well because of that, I think. But never really dealt with it in any mm. way. But I've done that. But do you ever still get recognised in the street as Les? Um, yeah, last Friday when this guy said... You were you were the art technician at school. He was probably about forty or something. Yeah. Um, so he would have been a teenager back then. And I said, "Oh, well spotted." And he said, <laughs> he said "It's the bald head. It's a giveaway." <laughs> so yeah, I don't don't wear white. Don't wear glasses. No, no pens. No, no, no pens. <laughs> don't walk around the spirit level under your arm. Yeah, you didn't go into the building trade. But interesting enough, my dad was always the joker in the family. I mean, people say, oh, we we loved your dad. He used to make us laugh so much. So I felt like I was carrying on the sort of family tradition in a way. Mm. He was never a professional performer, but he'd get up in the local pub and sing. Um, and I think, yeah, because my dad used to sing Please Release Me. That was my mum's favourite record. So when Jim started singing it, 
it just sort of, I don't know, resonated wow. with me. I think I probably saw Vic Rees as a father figure at some point. <laughs> <laughs> that would come up in therapy. That's some more therapy there, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> no, he thinks he thinks he was a sex symbol. But, you know, <laughs> back in his 20s and 30s, but I think he was a father figure to a lot of people. You could have a point there. You could have a point. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking about it. I like even seeing him in Shaking Stevens' video. Oh, yes, yeah. He's he in wouldn't... that. Oh, um, Lisa Ross, Jonathan's sister, put him in a TSB. I don't think that bank doesn't exist anymore, does it? TSB. Mm. don't think so. Um, he was in a 15-minute... I've got the, it's on video somewhere. Um, they they were giving it away free for TSB customers. And he is actually featured in that. And he got that gig through Lisa Ross, Jonathan's sister. So it, there are all these odd things out there yeah. in it that nobody seems to know about. <laughs> and also somebody filmed, I saw him about five years ago, and he was a filmmaker with a guy called Andy... Uh, Monty Whitebloom, I think his name. He made um, all the uh, De La Soul, all those back to reality. He made those vi videos. Oh. Soul to Soul. Soul to Soul. Yeah. So, um, but he was around as a friend and in the audience. So he, he got roped in to film this one-off big night out that we did in the, the Harp Club above the venue in New Cross. There's a little bar at the top. And we were up there doing this one-off big night out, which is where I did Planet Head uh, naked with this guy, Jerome. That has been that was filmed. Wow. And I said to him, when I saw Andy about five years ago, you know, what happened to that? I remember you filming it. What happened? He said, I've never had the film developed. Oh, my it's God. All, it's all on 16 mil. Oh, my. I said, well, you should get it. You know, it's a, that's a bit of a treasure trove you've got there. So he said he was going to dig it out, but I don't know what happened to that. I do do remember it being filmed. I thought that was, you know, very rarely did the stuff get filmed in the in the eighties. Wow. Yeah. Although we borrowed the video equipment from uh, Lucian Community Workshop, so that there were five videos filmed at the Albany, uh, five different Sundays. Mm. Um, yeah. There are all these. I'd, I'd love to see that film. I, I, you know, yeah, I'm coming under the cold sweat just thinking better. about it, Fred. <laughs> I mean, it would just be bizarre. I mean, have you seen those little bits of film? They turn up somewhere from the Albany. Yes, um, there was a few. The 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 old Vicarage Big Night Out fan club. I think with Jack Dent run. He had released a couple of VHSs, mm. which have now made it onto onto YouTube, which has got clips. They're not whole shows, yeah. but they've got small segments from them. Yeah. And I've got, I think he might have two or three of them. Um, and I've got a couple in a box somewhere in the attic. Yeah, so they were just a, a camera set up and they just filmed the whole thing from the Gimsman with no no editing. So bits that end up on TV obviously been edited out of those. Mm. And I, yeah, I did send something off to Channel X. Yeah, because, um, oh, it was for the, when the DVD came out, there was a little the making of the. Uh, they interviewed us at the Albany. Um, I went back there to an interview, and they used bits of the film. So I obviously I said that I'd had these two tapes, and they, they got it from there. But the other three tapes, I don't know where they are. Jack Dent's got them, or I don't know. Right, amazing, amazing. I'll see the light of day one day. Yes, I know it. <laughs> <laughs> well. Thanks so much, Fred, for joining us. That really was quite a boast. It was thank you so much. It's it wonderful to speak to you. I mean, we look forward to the book. Yes, yeah, so I will actually get around to. I've started researching it, so you know, there's a lot of stuff to go through. Got tons of photo. A nice set of photographs, black and white photographs. I've just found at oh, the Goldsmiths Tavern, mainly of Jim, and some of me dressed up as bizarre characters. So. <laughs> Yeah, I've been thinking it'd be good to do it almost as a scrapbook. Mm, so there's yeah. lots of photographs in it, mm. rather than pages of waffle. <laughs> yeah, like a coffee table book sort of thing. Yes, that maybe yeah. that's an idea. 
But um, I'd be interested to read his part two of his biography. Yes. If he ever remembers <laughs> he it. to get around to it, yeah. He'll probably wait for mine and that will jog his memory. <laughs> He's too busy painting birds at the moment, isn't he, you know? I know. I've, I've watched a couple of those. He, he, he was so talented even back then, you know. I sold one of his paint pictures for a couple of hundred quid years back in the 90s. I was desperate for some money and I just mm. thought, I, I don't like this drawing. <laughs> I'll sell it. <laughs> yeah. And someone offered me 200 quid and I said, yes, please. Mm. Oh, that, yeah, because he did lots of drawings that were used in the big night out and they were just thrown away afterwards at the Albany and the Goldsmith's Tavern. So I did retrieve a few out of the bin. I've got a hand-drawn birth- birthday card mm. by so that's that's a bit of a treasure. Worth a few quids? Yeah. There's a pension there, Fred. <laughs> he said he's got no interest in doing Vic Greaves anymore. So no. no. Which I don't blame him, really, you know. In when fact, you do the book, we won't use this in the in the podcast, but you want to um, yeah, make like an event of it and to get those get those videos digitised and get them on a, mm. on a screen or something at the same well, time. Someone said to me at the weekend... Maybe you could relaunch your comedy career. I said, "You're joking." It's the last thing I want to do. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm quite old. I'm, yeah, leave, I'm, leave the white coat at home when you do. Yeah, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm 68 this year. So no, yes, yeah. So I, I've retired. I'm, I've got my mm. old age pension and private pension. So living it up in Deptford. I've, I've lost the train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens at my age. <laughs> oh, it comes to us all, Fred. It really does. Yeah, but I will. I will write that book before, um, you know, before I die, or we have the end of the world. Whatever happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I do keep yeah. in touch. Yeah, and I thanks so any, much for that. Any Fred, data it's... about it? Oh, that's that's okay. <laughs> oh, well, I've, I've enjoyed it. It's been great. You know, that's been fantastic. Maybe me do it. Do something similar when the book comes out. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Thank you all for listening to this edition of Quadabost. Special thanks to Matt Lucas for permission to use the Peanuts music as our theme tune, and thanks to Ed Lewis for this edit. Thank you to Jake Chesson for permission to use the photo from his 1995 shoot of Jim and Bob in our various online locations for the podcast. And of course, thank you very much to Jim Moyer and Bob Mortimer, without whom this podcast, well, it just wouldn't exist, would it? Remember to check out Paula's Divine Comedians podcast as well, and to join the Reza Mortimer Depository of Curious Stuff Facebook group. And I think you'll agree that really was a lot of fun. Goodbye. <laughs>